Today on Ag News Daily. While the language may change, but the issues of how do you represent agriculture, how do you tell that story, how do you help consumers understand what we do on the farm, how we do it, those types of things. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is Mike Pearson here coming to you solo today. Delaney is working with corn and soybean producers here this morning slash early afternoon. Then she's going to work with pork producers. And so she claims she's just too darn busy to jump in on the podcast. And we're going to let her off with this one. So I'm bringing you the news. And we do have an interesting and engaging a soybean-promoting news story to kick off the day, and that is the fact that China has made their first major purchase of U.S. soybeans since the Trump-Xi meeting. Uh, earlier today, China was confirmed they bought 500,000 tons of U.S. soybeans. This was purchased for the state-owned reserve, so this these beans will be imported into China, and they will not be subject to that 25% tariff. So China hasn't gotten rid of the tariff. They're just finding a way around it, which is, uh, you know, I think something I'd predicted earlier on when this trade war was getting started. There was also an announcement that they are possibly going to give two private soybean importers waivers from the tariff as well. Basically, this looks to me as though China is looking to keep pressure on soybean prices by keeping that tariff in place, not encouraging all of their crushers and all of their importers to run into the market and buy beans from the U.S. like crazy, thereby keeping prices down here in the, you know, 920s, you know, FOB Chicago. But at the same time, they're trying to fill those holes that South America just can't quite meet while trying to keep President Trump happy. So was good news, that's for sure. We're getting beans shipped off the coast, uh, reportedly this 500,000 tons, is going to be shipped out of the Pacific Northwest. So probably not enough to get a huge basis improvement for our friends up in North and South Dakota and Western Minnesota. But it's definitely a step in the right direction. So we'll continue to keep an eye on it. Hopefully we'll see some more flash sales come through. Maybe instead of buying as unknown destinations, perhaps China will actually buy as China now. If in fact they have been buying as unknown. And of course nobody knows that, but... Uh, the, uh, the eggheads at the USDA, I suppose, but we'll see. So that is good news there. That definitely helped soybeans continue their rally. They were up a little bit on the day, up a nickel, it looks like, on the front month contract for today. That is positive developments for those of you who are, I don't know, trying to make your, your marketing plans, trying to figure out what to do with beans you've still got or what to do with your acreage this next year. While we're talking acreage, we do have... I think the final announcement with regard to the Syngenta lawsuit, of course, this is in regards to the MIR-162 variety that was sold in the U.S., and then some of it made its way into shipments to China where it had not been approved. So a federal judge has approved the settlement of $1.51 billion for more than 650,000 corn growers who had signed on to that lawsuit. Now, remember, you could sign on to this lawsuit. You didn't have to have uh, planted the MIR-162, that Viptera variety. You just had to have sold corn during the marketing period that was covered. I forget what that was here, looking at the ruling. But basically, this is going to be, you know, a little bit for all of those growers. Now, of that $1.51 billion settlement, $503 million, or a third of it, is going to the attorneys 
Holy buckets. I tell you what, I was never very good at school, but I read about cases like this and I think, you know what, maybe law school doesn't look that bad. Basically, if they decide to pay out all the farmers equally, and I'm not sure if they're doing it based on number of bushels or just per farmer, but if they do pay it out equally, that's 1500 bucks for the 650,000 corn growers who had signed on a piece, who had signed on to this lawsuit. So if you were one of those folks who had signed on to this, check your mailboxes. It looks like you will be getting a check here in the short term. And I know this time of year, Christmas time come up, or the holiday season, I suppose, we we want to keep everybody in mind in the holiday season. It's always nice to have a little extra cash. And 1500 bucks. I tell you what, I could uh, do something with that. Basically, the judge who issued the final ruling said, quote, this was not a simple or straightforward negligence case. The $1.51 billion settlement amount is very impressive. It is one of the largest known settlements in any kind of case, and it represents a significant percentage of the actual damages alleged by the plaintiffs. They allege that the drop in the corn market in toto was due to this MIR-162 variety, and uh, $1.5 billion certainly recovers a chunk of that for the growers. We've got a report from CoBank. You know, I always like to talk about these. I think they have some of the greatest researchers in the business over there who keep an eye on changes and trends happening inside the uh, the ag industry. CoBank, if any of you are listening, I'd love to have you on a talk sponsorship. But uh, they did just publish their knowledge exchange division, just published a report talking about crush margins. And crush margins, as we know, we've had Ted Seifert and numerous other analysts report on the program, have been historically strong for the past several years. They've been record strong this year. And that strength in margins is encouraging new crushers to get into the business. In fact, we've got two plants that are set to open at the end of 2019, and the third is expected to begin production in 2021. They do say that combined, these three new plants are going to increase overall production capacity by at least 6%, and that means they are going to be, we are going to have the capacity to crush an additional 120 million bushels of soybeans per year. That means we're going to be producing 2.8 million tons of bean meal and about 1.4 billion pounds of soybean oil. That is really cool news, in my opinion, especially when we're looking at tight, uh, excuse me, when we're looking at wide basis in a lot of parts of the country that just don't have a good domestic source of demand. Two of these processing plants, the two coming online in 2019, one's in Michigan, and one is in South Dakota, and that third plant, that one's going to come online in 2021, that is supposed to be built in North Dakota, but they are still uh, sort of, I believe, putting the funding together for that one. I don't think ground has been broken as of yet. So that one's still a maybe, and of course that's the place that in 2018 most needs additional soy crushing capacity. Um, they do expect a lot of those from a lot of the meal and oil from the South Dakota and North Dakota plants to be shipped overseas, given the fact that there's just not enough livestock in those two states to justify the production coming out of these plants. They're going to have to aim for an export market. But Michigan, that one, some of it might get into Canada, but a lot of that is going to be going to the domestic livestock industry. You know, we've seen the hog industry in particular just continue to explode across southern Michigan and Indiana and Ohio, where that... Uh, you know, Michigan City pork plant has now opened up and I believe is now at two shifts, so running almost at capacity, keeping them little piggies 
moving on down into bacon land, which is good news for all of us that enjoy eating delicious pork, pork bacon, pork sausage, pork hot dogs, various sandwiches made from pork, pulled pork. Feel kind of like Bubba Gump. So many different ways to eat pork. Um, I've got another story here. This one I thought was interesting. We haven't talked about this much on the podcast because there's so much misinformation and, and frankly just a lot of the science is still being developed, but honeybees have been dying um, for a lot of different reasons. Canada, Great Britain, the EU have alleged uh, pesticides are killing them off, specifically neonicotinoids, um, also vanishing habitats. Poor nutrition is one of the things that is alleged to be causing a honeybee die-off. And of course, climate change, one of those things which could be causing them to die off. And at the end of the day, you know, who knows what the, the root cause is. But scientists at the University of Helsinki in Finland, I believe, Helsinki, Finland, that feels right, uh, they have developed the first edible vaccine against microbial infections, another one of the causes for this colony collapse for honeybees. And they hope that this can get out there, get into the world, and save some of these pollinators. Uh, the the lead scientist on the project was a man by the name of Dalil Fritak, and he says, we might now be at a tipping point without even realizing it. We've been taking the pollination services for granted for so long, these insects are not there, they are disappearing, end quote. So this vaccine inoculates bees against American fowl brood, which is a globally spread disease that can kill entire colonies, and this is the scary part, the spores from this microbial fungus can remain viable for more than 50 years. Oof. So you can't just wipe it out in the soil. You can't, uh, you know, aerial, aerially apply a pesticide. That spore is just going to sit there until the next unsuspecting bee picks it up. And what they say, their technology, this, this edible vaccine technology, may in the future be used to combat fungal diseases and other bacterial infection. Basically, this disease, or this vaccine rather, is administered via an edible sugar patty that's suspended in the hive for the queen to consume over seven to ten days. So the queen's going to eat it after she ingests these pathogens. So, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a live vaccine, I guess. She's able to spark an immune response in her offspring, and over time, that leads to an inoculated hive. Now, if the American fowl brood strikes the hive, I suppose, before this is she's fully inoculated all the workers, I guess a bunch of them are going to die off and the other half are going to be fine, I suppose. But uh, it's very interesting. They say it still needs work before it can become commercially available. Uh, scientists have to ensure it's safe for the environment, for the bees, there's no unintended consequences. And of course, you know, the honey still has to be safe and tasty if it's going to be a commercially uh, re reliable product. Um, I think this is interesting. I really like the concept of a vaccine that's in a sugar patty. You know, I, I didn't get the flu shot this year. Hate me if you must. I, I don't usually get it. I don't usually get the flu, so I've just kind of always avoided the vaccine. But I tell you what, I would be a lot more willing to get a vaccine if I could eat it like a Smarties candy. You know, that's something I could really get behind. I'm not a huge fan of needles, if I'm being honest. And uh, the ability to just consume it you know, or maybe drop it in drop it in a Mountain Dew and get double the sugar kick, heck, 
That's something I would be on board with. The only other thing I have of note, before we get to a great conversation um, from our field reporter, Bruce Gorder, is I've seen more and more press about the rewriting of the WOTUS rule. TikTok, which is Bloomberg's news service designed for social media, they basically put up 30 second to a minute long videos with a lot of text that help break the news down for a millennial audience. Um, they published a story this morning that, quote, the EPA, this was their tweet, the EPA wants to roll back rules that protect wetlands and streams, worrying environmentalists. That's not what's happening with this. A, we don't know what this new WOTUS is really going to look like quite yet. We know it's going to look different than President Obama's WOTUS rule. But we also know that President Obama's WOTUS rule never actually went into effect anywhere. Nobody ever acted on it because it was always in legal jeopardy. So nothing is being rolled back. These are the kind of headlines and the kind of stories that train people to be wary of what is happening in agriculture. We're going to see a lot of the same kind of headlines coming out about the farm bill. Of course, it's an 800 and what, 30 some billion dollar program over 10 years on 803 different pages. There's going to be a lot of shade thrown at farmers through this kind of legislation. So it's up to all of us to know at least the basic details so we can refute it if and when it, uh, you know, we get the chance to do so in person with somebody. Now, let's see. If that does it for the news today, and I believe that it does, let's kick it over to the markets. And, folks, our markets are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, put a plan in place to manage your marketing risk by giving them a shout. They can help you stick to it. You can reach them at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at zaner.com. As we take a look here, Small amount of strength in the corn market. December corn was up one and a quarter cents at 376 and a quarter. The March was up a half to close the day at 385 and a quarter. Soybeans, as I mentioned, some strength today following that Chinese purchase. The January contract was up a nickel at 920 even. The March up a nickel as well to close the day at 933 and a quarter. In Chicago wheat, December contract up five and a half cents at 515 and a quarter. The March also up five and a half to close the day at 526 and a half. Looking over at the world of livestock, we've got green all down the screen today. In live cattle, the December contract was up 75 cents at 119.1250. The February was also up 75 to close the day at 122.90. Feeder cattle, Jan contract up 27.5 cents at 147.5750. The March up 37.5 to close at 145.27 and a half. In lean hogs, the December contract was up 27.5 cents at 54.72.5. The February up 50 cents on the day to close at 65.70. And in the dairy market, we've got a little bit of strength today. The December contract was up 4 cents in Class 3 milk at 13.75. The January up 8 cents on the day to close at 14.20. Without further ado, let's take it over to our good friend Bruce Gorder and hear what he's been learning about international trade. We hear a lot of reports of commodity groups and state officials participating in trade missions around the world. What we don't hear much about is what goes on inside those meetings. David Miller is the director of research at the Iowa Farm Bureau and a seasoned veteran of several of these trips. 
He recently took a couple of those trips, one to China and one to Europe. He provides us some interesting insight to the dialogue on relationship building, first the European trip. Very interesting uh, trip. We've been uh, working with the German-American Chamber of Commerce for about five years now on what we call the Transatlantic Dialogue for Agriculture. And it's been a very good program. In early November, there was a group of Germans that came to the U.S., came to Iowa, uh, and a couple other states. And uh, we, we met and we had some dialogue here on various uh, issues. Uh, this particular uh, trip back to Germany uh, focused on social media and on uh, uh, ag communications. We started with a uh, uh, in the Hanover, Germany area with a uh, World uh, Ag Bloggers uh, Conference and there were people from Australia, Canada, the US, Germany, UK, uh, Poland, Italy, Spain, Netherlands, uh, Denmark, uh, probably three or four other countries that I'm forgetting. Uh, it was a terrific uh, opportunity to meet with ag bloggers and uh, from around the world and talk about some of the issues that we have of telling the story of agriculture. One, finding the commonalities that while the language may change, but the issues of how do you represent agriculture, how do you tell that story, how do you help consumers understand what we do on the farm, how we do it, those types of things. So a very good opportunity to do that. We got to participate in the Euro-Tier uh, egg show, which uh, in 2018 was focused on livestock. Uh, big show. It uh, brought people and exhibitors in from all over Europe and e even the world. Uh, I, I had met a uh, young lady from the Ukraine uh, when we did a, one of our market study tours to Ukraine. She's now working for a dairy association. She was there at the show, so I had an opportunity to meet up with her and, and talk about what they're doing out of Ukraine in uh, doing dairy development in Kazakhstan and uh, the Georgia Republic and in some of the other uh, former Soviet Union republics etc. and opportunities that are happening there for ag development. Uh, as again, saw a lot of uh, frontline uh, new technology, particularly in the hog and, and dairy areas of technologies that are uh, going to be shaping uh, those agricultural production areas. But at the, we then moved on over towards Ber uh, Berlin and had an opportunity to meet with the uh, Ministry of Agriculture, the German Ministry of Ag, and talk about U.S. Uh, uh, European trade, talk about ag policy, they're in the midst of going into uh, their common agricultural policy or CAP reform and how that, uh, what's happening there. They were very interested in what was happening with our farm bill and agriculture in the U.S. So opportunities to build relationships and develop those types of things. Uh, and then we finished out the trip with uh, Andy Hill, our uh, board member from uh, North Central Iowa and I went over to Brussels and m had a, a day and a half of very good meetings with EU officials. Again, making contacts, talking about environmental programs, talking about trade, talking about uh, domestic ag policy, and uh, creating, again, a, a greater understanding, both of them, of, of U.S. ag policy, putting a face on American agriculture, but also for us gaining a better understanding of maybe how their ag policy has to move through both the European Commission and then implemented down at the individual sovereign countries. 
And so uh, very good uh, sessions that we had there uh, in that uh, 10 days in Europe. Communications is a big first step, isn't it, in talking about differences and commonality, as you mentioned? Oh, 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 very wise people over the years had said, first, seek to understand. And I think that's the key, that before you can judge and or uh, reach common ground, you need to seek to understand. And that understanding needs to be a two-way street. And part of what international relations is all about is seeking to understand. It isn't all about, well, this is how we do it. it, it it's about understanding their environment uh, and uh, why people do what they do. And then you can put forth proposals and other things, but first you've got to seek to understand. You also went to China before that, and China is our, a huge part of what we're going to be doing in the future as far as exports go. What kind of a reaction did you get over there? It was interesting because the day we arrived was the day the tariffs, counter tariffs went into effect. So the first 20 minutes of it, we had a lot of very good meetings there in Beijing. We were meeting with the uh, Chinese Feed Industry Association and the Chinese Grain Sector and the Chinese Animal Ag Sector. They want U.S. beans. They were rather upset that their president chose soybeans as one of the retaliatory products except their position was that President Trump put the tariff on soybeans. And we said, we, and they kind of railed on us for about 20 minutes about all these things, well, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then we kind of politely said, not to be disrespectful, but it was your president that chose soybeans. It's a Chinese tariff on U.S. soybeans. Well, but, but we can't talk to our president. You can talk to your president. <laughs> and, but it opened up a dialogue. And then we would go on and have very good meetings. And at the end of it, every one of them said, we are glad you're here. We need to talk. We need to have greater understanding. So even though the, it was a little bit contentious at the start of almost every meeting we had, by the end of the meeting, we were having good discussions. We were gaining understanding of each other. And they were understanding, well, it's not just U.S. actions here, that there are legitimate trade issues that have to be resolved. And, and that there's uh, one, we were hopeful that uh, as we get through this, that we're, you know, this is not about the U.S. not being a reliable supplier. Our supply is here and it's for sale. Right now, it's China not being a reliable customer, not a reliable buyer. And, and I think they understood that. And, and so I think there was many opportunities we had when we were there in China. We did meet with uh, Ambassador Branstad, had a very good briefing by the uh, ag staff at the U.S. Embassy. But we had opportunities to also present at a major China oilseed conference and talk about U.S. agriculture to those Chinese buyers, and I think, again, we had an opportunity to put a good face on Iowa agriculture, on U.S. agriculture as part of that, had an opportunity to answer questions, and that's a lot of what it's about in, again, international trade stuff, is all understanding that ultimately the trade agreements are going to be done government to government, but purchases and et cetera are still done on trust and relationships with producers and buyers and that. And while there may be some disputes hampering the, the way right now, 
you still got to work at building those relationships. Good stuff there from David Miller. He's the director of research for the Iowa Farm Bureau Federation and a seasoned veteran of trade missions all over the world. I'm Bruce Gorder for Ag News Daily. Well, I do always enjoy hearing from David Miller. He is a very well-respected guy who has traveled, I think, well, I know he's traveled all around the globe repeatedly. He has really done a lot of different things. He is a seasoned veteran of those trade trips, so it's always nice to hear from him and hear his takes. Hopefully, we might get Delaney on the podcast tomorrow. She is headed south down to Texas to uh, Lubbock, maybe? Is that where Texas Tech is? Uh, for her graduation. So if you enjoy Delaney on the podcast, drop her a note. You can find her at DelaneyHowell07 on Twitter. Send her a congrats for graduating. And um, always check out Ag News Daily and the Global Ag Network. Just search for both of that on Twitter and on Facebook. We are on both places. And you can always catch up with past episodes of ours on our website. Go to agnewsdaily.com and it will direct you to our new home at the Global Ag Network where you can listen to every past podcast. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to let you go.